Ladies and gentlemen, it's the T.K. Kirkwood Show. Gentlemen, to all my fans around the world, shout out to executive producer Charlemagne the God from Germany to London to China to the streets of Seattle to the city of Los Angeles, California, Compton, and my hometown, Jersey City. I bring to you the one and only Mr. Michael Williams. Now, let me tell people about Michael Williams before we get started. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, there's been a huge rise in the black comedy world since the early 90s. Some of y'all wasn't even born. Some of y'all didn't even know know what stand-up comedy was about to the young internet comedians who probably don't do your due diligence and understand the history of stand-up comedy, how it all got started, how it all built momentum. This is the man right here who had a vision back in the 80s, and this thing has taken off like a rocket, Mr. Michael Williams. What up, sir? Hey, how you doing, Mr. T.K. Kirkland? T.K. Yeah. the motherfucking gang. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't use the sanity on so Saturday never, afternoon. That's what happens when you start getting old and getting close to the Lord. You, you, know, <laughs> you don't say no more. You know, you're talking to sad, and everything is... Um, you know God is good. You know you five five dollars. Ain't God good? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm not saying that. Okay, okay. I, I still get in my little MS and SHIs and. Uh huh. Now, Michael, you married now? Stuff. No, no, no. I'm I'm still uh. You still, still single, man? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. still you now now you know everybody y'all know I, I'm not saying Michael Williams is a player, but the women back in the day loved Michael Williams. And that is the truth. And, and they and I, still love me. And they still love you. And I just, and you know, sometimes you look at people, ladies and gentlemen, it's like, wow, he really put, like, you remind me when I was young. Let me tell you a story. In high school, my high school coach, I used to have some, I used to have some of the most beautiful women in the world dating me. And my coach used to say, how did you get all these girls? And when I used to see you, that's what I used to say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I said Michael Williams was the man. Doing something right. Now, Mike, let's talk about where you got your vision from and what made you get into the comedy world. Well, my, how can I say, my vision actually started uh, when I was a little kid. I just always knew that there was something that I had to do. Mm-hmm. in terms of being a servant to my race. And so I was always conscious about, you know, the plight of the, the, the race. I grew up during the civil rights period going into the black power movement. Yeah. So I was able to see and witness, you know, the water hoses, the dogs, the marches, you know, then and then power to the people, slogans and, Loving black people in Africa, nation of Islam, 
Mm-hmm. I started seeing all these things, and those things were part of my waking reality during that time. Okay. And so, again, I just knew that my love for Africa, my love for, you know, black people, you know, our race, Mm-hmm. That 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 I had a role to play in some form or fashion, and that's what eventually led me to just one day realizing when I had the blues and realizing I wanted to just go somewhere and laugh. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a place where I just could put my finger on it and say this is where I want to go, you know, because right. we didn't have. We didn't have anything established in our community. No, we sure and, didn't. And the only, only places I knew of were basically white-owned establishments. Right. So that's where I ended up going. Okay. And upon going there and then experiencing, to me, a night of horror, meaning all I saw was one white comedian after the next. Right. You know, all male, just unfunny, mm-hmm. boring, and yeah. I feel like, and I feel like I've been robbed. It's like, where's my money's worth? Right, right. And and that's when I realized that something's just not right with this picture. Okay. And because I spent my ten dollars and was made to buy two drinks. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I ain't leaving until I get my money's worth. <laughs> and I'm the only black person in the audience. Wow. And this was at the comedy store yeah. up on Sunset in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I had been to that place maybe two or three times in my whole life, never staying really that long, just yeah. long enough to go and see that it was a place that I just couldn't resonate with, you know, nothing mm-hmm. really made me just stay there. So into this evening, as it's about to, to wind down, I see somebody black walk in, and I said, damn, about time another audience member is, is here. You know, it's just not me, you know. Right. Here's a black guy. Mm-hmm. But then I notice he keeps going. Like, he's not taking a seat in the audience. He's going towards the stage and this, right. then disappears behind the stage. Mm-hmm. And I said, I wonder if this guy's going to perform. He's a black dude. So my wish came true. The guy came out, and the sad part was not only was he <laughs> the last comic of the evening, you know, I said to myself, just like white folks, they always put the brother on last. Right. But what made it worse was he wasn't funny. Wow. He was he was worse than most of the white guys that were up there. Right. And and that's when it hit me. I said, "Damn, you know, this would be great if it was all black because mm-hmm. I just said we need to have more of this." Right. So, so then for his last act. He puts on a robe, you know, I'll never forget. It was a green robe, looked like a big old drape off somebody's wall. And he puts that on and he grabs a book and he starts acting like an old Baptist preacher. 
And I say to myself, I can mm-hmm. relate to this. I grew up in a black church. Right. Man, this would be great if it was just all black all up in here. And that's mm-hmm. when the light hit. That's when the light hit. That was March 1985. Wow. By August of 85, I was in business, and the rest is history. That's insane. And so now how did you and Robin Harris meet? Well, I I met Robin about maybe – I met Robin in 1980. Oh, okay. You know him for a while. Well, no. I had heard about him. Okay. My, sis, my sister, who used to go to all these different nightclubs, would tell me about some of the people that were performing, primarily musical artists and groups. Okay. But there was this one guy that she said was a comedian that was really funny, and I should come see him. But I never did really like going to nightclubs because it was just too much cigarette smoke for me. Right. So and and I figured just one day I would see him, you know. Okay. So anyway, uh, uh, my friend's uh, coworker, uh, who was hooked up with Michael Jackson at the time, mm-hmm. trying to start a musical career, she wanted me to come see her showcase at okay. the Hacienda Hotel. Wow, I remember that. And so I went to you know the hotel that evening. And for her opening act was this guy. Mm-hmm. Turned out to be a comedian. Right. And that's when I said, wait a minute, this is kind of funny. Oh, is this the guy my sister's been telling me about? Mm-hmm. And that was Robin Harris. Wow. And I'm looking at him and I'm saying, man, this would be nice if it was somebody like him and 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 at the time I knew Paul Mooney real well. I had met okay. him in in the late seventies, right? And mid to late seventies. And I said it would be great if these two guys are on the same, you know, bill. You know, I would love to see a show like that. But as soon as I thought about it, the thought just you know floated off and and didn't really you know resonate anymore. I just thought about it, let it go, and then that was it. Mm-hmm. So when I saw Robin that night, you know, after the show, I, 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 you know, just congratulated him on his act and told him, you know, I thought he was pretty good. And that was the end of that. Never saw him again, but I never stopped thinking about him because I remember the one thing that, that stuck out the most was that not only is he a good comedian, mm-hmm. he's a good black comedian. Mm-hmm. Not black in the sense that he was, you know, African American, right? But but black in the sense that he was culturally black. Yes, he made me feel as though he had that whole legacy of 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 of, of what it was like for us to have come here from the time that we were snatched from, you know, our African shores and brought over here to the American shores, mm-hmm. and and our and our physical plight from that point forward. Yes. Meaning every experience that we had, every memory that we we had that never truly left us that was being passed down from generation to generation, even though our memories were slowly eroding based on the fact that, you know, there wasn't, you know, that that written portion of 
of being able to retain our culture. Right. Everything was being passed orally. And as you know, when things are passed orally, from time to time, what's blue, what was blue now is green. And what right. was green now has turned into a frog. And what was a frog is now a tree, you know, with lips on it. So all those things I knew uh, 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 um, uh, basically were coming out of him. And those were the things that I just kind of resonated with him that, I just felt like I, I I would like to see more of this. So mm-hmm. I just never forgot about it. And it wasn't until, and I've said this so many times, that when I got the uh, idea and, and developed, you know, the uh, position that I was going to start a black comedy club, you know, not just for black comedians, but for mm-hmm. us as a people because right. – I went for a healing that night, and I figured that if that's what I went for and I found something that I didn't recognize, I can't be the only black person that, that's not getting this. Okay. And I've always felt that I knew quite a bit across you know, the country from all my travels being a concert promoter and just traveling from city to city doing a lot of different things with the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. that I had a basic general knowledge of kind of like what's going on, you know, in the country. And comedians were never a part of that equation. Right. Other than they were considered a second-class act. Damn right. So true. So anyway, when it came to me uh, uh, deciding when I was going to start, how I was going to have my show uh, formatted. I knew I wanted a strong host. Okay. And I knew I wanted to have somebody that could quickly penetrate Hollywood because the intent was not to just have a club, but to also wake up an industry to make Mm. sure that what I am building is not just something that's just la-di-da, but it's something that is big and powerful because I'm about to wake up an industry. On top of that, I'm about to usher in a slew of talent that nobody knows about because I don't even know about them. And, right. they, and, and, and they, in essence, don't even know they exist because they right. haven't had the opportunity to know that this is something available to them on a regular basis, that they don't have to ask permission to be a part of. Yep. And so with that, I turned to my friend, Paul Mooney, mm-hmm. who I knew was part of the Hollywood industry and yes. the black Hollywood industry because right. of his involvement with, you know, different organizations, different black celebrities at the time, and, you know, being part of Richard Pryor's, uh, 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 you know, group. Right. And so I asked him would he consider being my host because I said, hey, uh, Paul, I'm going to be opening up a black comedy club and I'm looking for somebody to host the show. And he just, you know, kind of like almost interrupted my, 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 you know, my opening pitch to him and said, man, I don't want to do no nigga shit and hung up the phone on me. Wow. 
before I could really get into explaining anything, the conversation was over. But I did not feel slighted at all. I felt encouraged at that moment. I felt empowered because I'm being turned down by somebody I'm thinking is legit. But in my heart, he really wasn't my first choice. Okay. He he was only my first choice because of how I wanted to position, you know, you know, my my comedy club within the entertainment industry. Yeah. But my first choice was this guy I had seen one time five years ago. Yes. And that was Robin Harris. And within a matter of a week or so, I was in touch with him. I can't recall exactly because we're talking over 35 years ago. Yeah. If we met prior to the, the opening of the first night or we just met that first night. But on that first night, uh, I gave him basic instructions as to how I wanted the show to look and, mm-hmm. and, and the feel and what I did with just about everybody, including you. Mm-hmm. I just got out of your way <clears throat> and let you keep fucking up till you got it right. That's right. You sure did. You sure did. Because and, and who am I? That's what, yeah. that's what was so good. When you look back now, I'm talking to you about, when you look back now and see how you did it because you allow people to make their mistakes uh-huh. and to figure it out if you really wanted this that bad. If you wanted it, you was going to put the work in. Exactly. And this is what I try to get to under to teach the internet comedians and people who have not grown in stand-up that's been stagnated for years, right? They right. don't grow because, see, what, not only was you ahead of your time, Mike, Robin, the Regency West, you was the blueprint to how stand-up business and comedy should go. Because what people understand is show business. Right. See, everybody wants to become a comic, but you don't really have to become a, a comic. You can use this platform to go into so many different levels of entertainment and just life in general. Like we were having a discussion the other day, you could take stand a comedy and become an agent, a manager. Right. Right. Business manager. He says that comedy teaches you the business. Right. It right. teaches you the business, right? right? Not only that, it shows the white clubs how to maneuver. I mean, you had this discussion the other day about how all these black comedians make all these white club owners wealthy. Right. Not rich, wealthy. Right. And right. they'll still say, and no disrespect to Paul Mooney, I don't want to do no nigga shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is the purpose of the show tonight, is is to is to let the world know about you, but to still explain the mindset of some of the most talented stand-up comedians in the world. 
that if we take the same direction of what you put out there in the universe and understand what we have, we could have a chain of black comedy clubs that no one could fuck with. Excuse my language. Well, we could have been had it. Yep, could have been had it. You know, but it, it, it takes it takes a certain individual to understand it, and it takes uh, a certain breed of individuals not to allow the pettiness and the enviness yep. and and the ignorance, you know, to get involved in in not making it come to life. Yes, yes, yes. Because there's been so many opportunities I've heard through the grapevine, so to speak, that people wanted to do things with you over the years. And I was like, okay, I wish that well for Mike. But like you just said, either pettiness or confusion or nobody Uh wants to give a person their shine. It never Uh changed. And I used to always say, damn, because even though I was still building my career, my career, my career really didn't take off in the comedy world, Mike. Uh-huh. Started in the late '90s, because you know I was in the hip hop world. I was with the rappers. Uh huh. And see, Jay Z, the Easy E's, all the rappers, the AMGs, those guys made me very successful. Uh huh. Became um, a regular act in the comedy clubs. Uh huh. That was your peer group. That was my group. You guys were coming of age. Right. You know, because I'm not sure how old you are now, but I'm I'm sure I got at least, you know, 10 to 12 years on top of you. Yes. And so that's a whole generation. You know, I was already doing my thing. I mean, I was right. 30 I was 32 when I first started in 85. Okay. Right. I was 6 months older than Robin. Okay who I used to think was old enough to be my uncle. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but I was older than him. And and uh, and so I'm saying you guys were still not even young enough to come in, even though, you know, like I say, you could have been 19, 20, 21, but that's still, you know, 10 to 12 years older at the time. Right, right. Because I don't even think Ricky Harris, was uh, uh, old enough to have been working at the club at the right. time, and you and you gave so many opportunities. I wish a lot of comics could have seen what this blueprint is. This blueprint you created was like you created some of the greatest comics in the world because you gave them a platform to work. But then we had the greatest MC in stand-up comedy history, right. Robin Harris. Right. And if you if you took the time to study him, you became great. Right. And one has to understand, Robin wasn't like that before I met him. Robin grew to be what he ultimately became. Because now, yeah, but 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 he had basically a lab in which to work out everything. 
Right. And right. he has the discipline and and the the intuitiveness to understand that the directions I was giving him, you know, he adhered to some of them. Now I didn't have to help him a lot of times with his basic stand up. All that was natural. Right. The only thing I had to help him with was writing a lot of the stuff down that he just did off the cuff because I knew if I didn't, he wouldn't remember it. And I said, this was brilliant. Yes. Because a lot of people don't understand that Bebe's Kids, the creation of that was a series of jokes he would tell, series of jokes and stories and just, you know, those impromptu type of uh, uh, moments when he would talk about the audience. Yes, yes. And the way the audience would react and how he would tell it, there were times when I just started writing it all down because I said all he has to do is line all this material up in a way where it could be a complete story. Okay. Because because I realized I understood what we were, we meaning black people were under, you know, really, really enjoying. Yeah. And that was the ultimate, you know, ability to tell a hell of a good story, you know, from a cultural mm-hmm. standpoint. And so I remember one day I handed, handed Robin about four or five napkins. <laughs> and and he said, what is this? I said, just read it. And he read it, and he started laughing. He said, oh, so you trying to be a comedian now? I said, no, nah, man, that's all your stuff. Right. That's all that you have said. He said, what? This is some good-ass stuff. I'm that's using funny. this tonight. That's funny. And that, again, is when I w- was telling him, you know, you're talking about these women you met. You're talking about and going to their house and to the motel and mm-hmm. meet, meeting the kids and all that kind of stuff. I said, man, you need to weave this stuff together. I said, because it's good in bits and pieces, yeah. but it's even better sometimes when you actually transition from meeting a woman at the club and then ending up at her house. Okay. And I said, all you got to do is make this, that much more, you know, enjoyable to your audience by now, just adding more to it. And out of all those years, that's what I'm about to tell you, because you never know who can have an effect on someone. How those all those years coming down, ladies and gentlemen, stand that standing room only, lines around the corner to the fellas on the most beautiful women in the world. You know who gave the greatest show to me to this day that blows me away? Uh, Don Reed. Oh, whoo. Yes. When he used to play, uh, it's like candy. Like he'd do all the characters at the beginning of the show. Yeah. And in conclusion, he would do those same characters. Oh, I think about that at least 20, 30 times a year. Yeah. That was the greatest performance I've ever seen as a stand up. Yeah. And you have to, again, understand that. We didn't see that kind of kaleidoscope of talent prior to, because there was no place for any of that to be assembled, yeah, and 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 let loose, yeah, and 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 your peers before you, or I don't know exactly how you actually st- 
started. You know, I don't know what the white club were like, you know, for no, you. No, your club was the first club. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm saying those that were going the, the, the white or mainstream route, you know, they were handcuffed. They couldn't yeah. be black. They couldn't, oh, hell no. you know, be anything other than what those people wanted because they, in other words, those clubs wanted what they wanted. Yeah. And 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 you got to respect that. That's what they wanted. Yeah. They weren't looking for an audience like us. Yeah. They weren't looking for a multitude of black talent like us because sure because they were white and we were black. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's why when I saw that there was a need to have our own and not have to ask permission, can we do it? Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was it was a no brainer. Because even when I told <clears throat> excuse me, Robin from day one that our show format was not going to be a typical comedy club show format. It was going to be one of vaudeville. Okay. And and I said, this is what I want you to do. And then, you know, you do it like this, and then I get out your way, and then you just improvise. Right. Because, again, Robin appeared to have been, you know, one of the performers from that era. Okay. Because Robin, like so many of you guys, which is normal, mm-hmm. you take what's already been done and you mimic it. Yes. And so a lot of those uh, uh, talented individuals back then, you know, they were into the storytelling. They were into the more visual discipline, acting out out scenes, you know, being yes. able to create characters and, and, and use, you know, uh, the times that they were in uh, to, you know, just kind of like sharpen what they had. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you got to understand, we weren't that many, you know, we were just a couple of generations away from the beginning of the 19th century. So anybody right. that was a part of those times, you know, came out of that. And yeah. so they got what they got from those that were, uh, to a degree, enslaved people. And that was more of an oral history that had been passed on. Mm. So so I knew that one of the reasons also for me starting this was to to do my part. And my part, again, was to make sure that we help preserve our oral history yes. before it's totally forgotten and and make sure that from this time forward it's documented. You know, because now it's documented in, in audio tape and, in, in, you know, videotape. You know, there's yeah. been movies and television programs. And and within all this, you will see bits and pieces of things that we heard when we were babies mm-hmm. being used, you know, in, in, in uh, uh, these films and television shows and, you know, live on stage now. So, so it's important to preserve history. Yeah, cultural history. Mm-hmm. And again, I wanted us to be different from everybody else. And you so. did your thing because look at all the clubs, Mike. Yep. Look at all yep. the black clubs that was born because of the Comedy Act Theater. 
We have yep. so many black comedians now that it's yep. unbelievable. And you have to also look at not so many uh, clubs. You have to look at the multitude of voices that have come forth. Yeah. Because there was a time when every day of the week, and, and think about it, Every day of the week, there was a time when you didn't hear a comic's voice yeah. on the radio, yeah. on television, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on Sundays, you know, possibly from somebody's pool pit. Yeah. You, you didn't hear that? Nope. Now you can hear comedy seven days a week. You sure can. 24-7. Yes. And... Who has a greater voice in a, in Black America than the Black comedian? Yes. It, no it, true. It, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes, I do. The the numbers are great. So you guys are right there, basically up there with the politicians and 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 the uh, and the uh, and the uh, preachers. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of having, having, yeah, in in terms of needing an audience in which to express yourself. Yeah. So people do listen. We, I mean, we got Pandora now. Yes. You understand? We got comedy stations now. Yeah. And that's why, again, all your peers, you and your peers, needed was an opportunity just wake up and say, I'm alive, I'm here, and I want yeah. to talk about it. And and basically look at a, a, a audience and say, you know, don't y'all want to hear what I got to say? Right. And they're like, hell yeah, I want to hear it because I, I've been needing to hear my own voice come from people like you because the only time I hear it is at home. But yeah. I need to hear it in a way where I don't feel like I have to hold myself back right. from saying the things that we normally don't say outside of the home. Yes. And so I'm saying that to say uh, you guys have done a tremendous job and, and, and history is going to indicate that there was this moment when you guys came to life and basically started the genesis for what is now mm-hmm. something that is never going to stop. You are so right. Never. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about, and we're not talking about in America. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. When I sit back, think about when I first met you and think about where we are today and how this has truly grown. And I couldn't wait. To do this interview, I wanted to do this interview years ago, but what I've learned in life with my career and everything I do in life now, I like things to happen organically. Mm-hmm. It feels better. I think I'm more enthused when I do certain things. Because uh-huh. what people understand, um, the 90s was a who-you-knew type of business to make it in this world uh-huh. to the fans who are listening. You had to know somebody that knew somebody to get you in. This has grown so much now that, ladies and gentlemen, all you need is a little capital, and you can do it yourself. 
So the thing that I was saying and I told the ladies and gentlemen about in the 90s, you had to know somebody to really get on. This has grown so much, ladies and gentlemen. I need y'all to really listen to me. That if you get your money right, have your ambition, you can cut the middle man out to gain and do this yourself. And, and I'm going to explain to you people why. In the 90s, I'm just as good as any stand-up comic that's out there today, thanks to this man, Mr. Michael Williams. But whether it was my reputation, whether it was someone blocking my blessings, the goal in life is to have the endurance and the ability to keep going and not let nothing stop you. I say that is because me now have my own record label. I don't have to go to Atlantic Capital Records. Okay. Anything of the nature. I don't have to. You went out again. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I'm sitting down. I don't know what happened. Okay, it's okay. Um, yeah. I was telling people about the 90s had you had to go through someone. And to the people, as long as you have the ability to not give up, you can really do this on your own because me having a record label because I learned business and determination on so many levels, including watching this man right here, that now you don't have to go through no one. Like years ago, I just had to fight to try to get on HBO, not knowing it was a fucking long shot. Right. But now, it was a long shot. And because right. of my right. stand-up comedy, you know, my shit is, on, is, on, is edgy. So the same problems that we was having going into the comedy stores, the improvs was the same thing with the HBOs and Showtime. Right. And I wasn't buffoonish and... One of the producers of the Game of Thrones, and um, Steve Jacobs is his name. Oh, oh, he was not, he's not an HBO anymore. I called him two weeks ago to tell him what I have accomplished because he wouldn't give me a shot on HBO years ago. Uh-huh. And the gentleman said to me, Mike, TK, if you was buffoonish, if you was acting crazy and rolling all on the ground, we could get you an HBO special yesterday. Yeah. But this goes to show America, and they still have to understand, and, you know, the, the, the I'm going to say the industry. The industry still controls what they want the world to see. Exactly. They still control. Like, I won't, they'll put out a slave movie 20 times in 10 years, but won't put out real constructive movies to embrace the black race. So I don't go see slave movies. You're not going to keep reminding me that we were slaves. I already fucking know that already. I know this already. And you can only slice this thing up so many times. And my point that I'm bringing this up, ladies and gentlemen, is that if you have the ambition to win, just don't never give up. Do your thing because only you can stop you. And that's how, these are the lessons. And I mean, me and you could talk forever for hours, hours of knowledge. Yeah. And I I think that there is a separate conversation when it comes to your position of not watching slave movies 
because um, my personal position is we need to see a lot more of them. Because okay, explain why. You, explain why. Because a, a lot of us, for example, my niece, mm-hmm. my sister's daughter, yes, took my great niece, which is her first cousin, to go see Django. Mm. And she said, are black people, were black people like this? She didn't even know. Whoa. She grew up grew up not knowing this part of our our history here in America. Okay. We need to know and we need to be reminded of what our people went through mm. and, and 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 all of what they sacrificed so we could be alive today and have the things like that, that we have. Okay. And and and, and you don't sometimes understand they endured a lot more than we ever can imagine. Oh, absolutely. And to simply just sidestep that and say, I don't wanna I don't wanna know about that. I don't want you know, don't remind me of that. No. Okay. You know You have enlightened me. You have enlightened yeah. me. And so I'm saying yeah. what we don't know is 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 why we don't do some of the things that we need to be doing today. Okay. It's it's, it's almost like why does a certain segment of our population glorify in the power of being ignorant, of mm. being ghetto? Why do they yes. glorify into that? Yes. You know, th- 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 that, that says something. Yes. Because, again, the fact you said the industry is controlling our image, meaning mm-hmm. they are telling us who we are to our own people, and we're believing it. Yes. So when I was told by some of your peers uh, during the time that Death Jam was 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 airing on HBO, mm-hmm. that that one of the reasons why they were having a hard time getting on the show was because they were considered a sellout or they just weren't ghetto enough because they didn't want to cuss and use, you know, profanity and sex jokes. Right. And, and, and they were being told that, you know, these places wanted them to basically be, you know, it's like let them be as nasty as they want to be because for HBO and, and ultimately all these other folks, they were being introduced to another consumer that they never pursued, and this consumer is spending money like crazy mm-hmm. because, again, we spend money, and yes, they know do. that, and they know that. Mm-hmm. So it comes down to economics. That's why the white clubs embrace finally bringing you know you and your peers in because that's another layer of income they never had. That's so true. And without it, you know, they they were they would have folded for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because if you recall those nights, they were more expensive than the regular nights. Yes, sure was. Even the drinks and the food cost a little more on those right. nights. Mm-hmm. And they were getting premium dollar on, yes. on 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 the you know interest. Yes. 
and they were demanding you buy two drinks. Damn sure was. So they were harsher than me. <laughs> <laughs> and for the comics listening, to the fans listening, that he's right. And there was a time you ain't see all these black comedians in these clubs. Yeah. Trust me when I tell yep. you that shit. Yeah. You yep. couldn't even like the comedians who wear T shirts and jeans, T K Kirkland who introduced that. Now I didn't introduce it on purpose. Because you remember, Mike, I used to dress up. I used to have slacks and and I dressed real nice back in the yeah. day. Yeah. So I yeah. hooked up with NWA. Uh-huh. And that's when I went with T-shirts and jeans. But I took that to the stage with a baseball uh-huh. cap. Uh-huh. And when I see comics dressing that way, because it was a time you couldn't do that. It was a time you had to have a dress shirt on. Or yeah. tie. Yeah. Or slacks. Yeah. You couldn't go on no motherfucking stage with no damn t shirt. That's why I said it was the changing of the generational guard. Yes. You know, your peers were that. were coming in and and the ones that had just made it were going out, so to speak. Yes. So it was a phenomenal, still phenomenal journey. And how the, how do you feel about the voting thing? Because you know all everything that you've done prior to now, and, and, and again, thanks for enlightening me on the um, the knowledge of our ancestors. Because I do talk about voting because of our ancestors on stage, and I do explain to them how people died and was hung and burned and mutilated and mutilated. Yes. To vote, and yeah. people just people just ignore it like it's nothing. And now yeah. that you have brought this to the forefront of my thoughts about being reminded, I will change my narrative on not going to see slave movies anymore because I never looked at it that way until you just said that. And you got to understand, words have power. And so once you convince somebody that this is your position and they buy into it, then they pass that down. That's so true. You're you're not really giving them a chance to really even seek out the the knowledge because, again, your voice is a strong voice. Yes. And so you're you're giving people a position, you know, in which to, to, you know, set their platform upon and 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 it's almost like the blind leading the blind. Yes, sir. You know, and so we need to have as much knowledge about ourselves as possible, yes. as much history as possible. Yeah. That's why I also encourage people to get their DNA done to find out, you know, uh, 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 how they migrated once they got here to the yes. Americas how they and their descendants were moved around mm-hmm. or ancestors were moved around and yeah. ultimately their descendants migrated, you know, all over the place because yeah. I've done mine and to date I'm sure I've connected with um, close to about 30, maybe more, directly, awesome. directly yeah. relatives that, we can draw 
straight lines to the beginning, or shall I say the end of the 1700s into the 1800s. That's awesome. And we are all over the country. Yes. And so I'm saying that to say what slavery did to us, technology is allowing us to mend those families back together because we don't know why some of us moved, you know, away. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm meeting people who were adopted that don't know anything about their, their history because they were adopted, their parents or their parents were adopted. And I'm blessed right now to have a, a cousin that's 102 whose, wow. ma- whose mama was born in 1883, and that was my grandfather's aunt. And and we just recently uh, connected with a cousin that he knew, you know, uh, uh, this cousin's grandmother. And 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 he found out that that the grandfather was his first cousin. Damn. His 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 father was just a name. I mean, his grandfather was just a name on a piece of paper, on a birth certificate, just a name, nothing else, just nothing else. And in, and in two minutes, you know, our older cousin's giving them the whole history. So I'm just saying that to say, hey, man, it's beautiful when you can just reunite, again, families that we don't even know we have and who we might be a part of. That's so true. Uh, because uh, I found out there have been people who I idolized that I realized that's my cousin. Yes. You know, I watched this person, you know, do his thing professionally, but that's my genetically, biologically, biological DNA cousin. Yes, yes, yes. I totally so, understand. So, so I'm just saying a lot of what the Comedy Act meant not only just to me because it's something that I built, but it was something that I built for us as a people. Yes. And and it was to make sure, once again, we just don't forget who we are because somebody got to do the work. Yes. And I didn't mind being that conduit in which to have this work being done. And so, again, it's all about studying your history, understanding mm-hmm. your, your cultural background, you know, your cultural history, because I say to, again, you and your peers, therein lies a lot of your material. That's right. So true. So I can't tell a joke, but I'll tell you something that I read that was written in the 1800s during, during, during uh, 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 slavery. Right. It's a story about these two enslaved men on this plantation. Mm-hmm. And one of them walks up to the other and starts bragging about, hey, man, uh, I stuck my hand up on the mistress dress. And his friend said, what? You did what? Yeah, I stuck my hand up on the mistress dress. And she didn't even do nothing. Mm-hmm. And the other guy says, you lying, you didn't do that. And he said, yes, I did. I stuck my hand right up under her dress, and she didn't do nothing. He said, well, if she didn't do nothing, then I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. So he goes over to the big house, 
there's old mistress sitting in her rocking chair, and he moseys on up to her, sits down, and he reaches up under her dress. You know, he sticks his hand up on her dress, and she jumps up and starts hollering and screaming like, what are you doing? You crazy? You know, and then her husband comes out with a stick and starts to beat the guy, and he runs off. Right. And he runs back to his friend, and he says, hey, man, I thought you said you stuck your hand up on the mistress' dress and she didn't do nothing. He said, I did. He said, well, I did, and I damn near got beat to death. Mm-hmm. He said, well, when I stuck my hand up on, up on the mistress' dress, it was hanging up on the, on the wall. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the T.K. Kirkman Podcast. This is the great Michael Williams. Mike, you have a website or any way the fans can reach out to you to say hello. Yes, I do have a website. It's comedyactplanet.com. That's comedy, C-O-M-E-D-E-Y. A-C-T-P-L-A-N-E-T.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please reach out to this brother, historian. Every comic that's your comic, this man started their career. On October 7th, ladies and gentlemen, check me out at the world-famous um, compound in Atlanta, Georgia. Make sure you get your tickets. Go to the website. Me and the great Goody Mob will be performing. In Indianapolis, Indiana, October 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th. Shows are almost sold out. I think we only have like two shows left that's almost gone. And make sure you wear, you bring your mask at the Helium Comedy Club. Make sure you check out the website, Helium in Indianapolis, Indiana. Make sure you get your tickets. I'll see everybody then. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Mike Williams, T.K. Kirkman, to all the fans around the world, this is T.K. Kirkman Podcast. May your pain be champagne. Thank you so much, I, Mr. I, Williams. TK, TK, I yes. have one last thing, one last thing, and yes. that is uh, soon, hopefully within the next uh, six to seven months, I'll be coming out with my book basically outlining and detailing the history of the Comedy Act Theater and all that was up under the roof of those four clubs that I opened. I had the first black comedy club, organized black comedy club. Then I opened up locations in Oakland, Atlanta, and Chicago before I ultimately, you know, uh, got sick and had to close everything down. But that book will be coming out. The title is is yet to be uh, uh, solidified, but I, I just want your audience to know that uh, the story of the Comedy Act Theater, America's first black comedy club, will be coming out within the next uh, seven to eight months. Love it. And we will have you back on the show when to promote your book as well. All right. All right. Thank you. So, let me tell you, to all the comics in the world, even me, I want to say thank you, Mr. Williams, for giving me the opportunity. I truly appreciate it because you changed a lot of people's lives, and I thank you. All right. You're welcome. All right, TK. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right. Bye. Make sure you follow TK Kirkland on Instagram at TK underscore Kirkland. For more information about upcoming events and more, visit www.officialtkkirkland.com.
This episode of the TK Kirkland Show was produced by Chris Thomas, executively produced by Charlemagne the God. This is an official Loudspeakers Network production.